maybe it's like the marketing of Go that we've kind of bungled a bit here. But I think there's this kind of uh, way that we sell it. Where it's like, oh, the syntax is so simple. It only takes you a couple of days to pick it up. But it's like, mm. there is a lot more that we expect of you when you write Go <laughs> than just being able to write the syntax. I, I think a manual style can really help with that is like help people understand like, yeah, you can you can pick up the syntax in like a weekend, but it's going to take you a very long time to sit down and understand all of the idioms that we have and why those idioms are there and how you use them and how and why you might want to violate them sometimes and you know really understand the nuance of that. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at Leno.com slash Changelog. What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Codish, a podcast from the team at Heroku, exploring code, technology, tools, tips, and developer life. There's a ton of great episodes on the Codish podcast, so I'd encourage you to check it out and subscribe. But in particular, I want to bring to your attention the recent episode featuring Cornelia Davis, the CTO of WeWorks, talking about cloud native, cloud native patterns, and what it really means to be a cloud native application. Here's a sneak peek. Can you define GitOps? Maybe give a formal definition and, and talk about what some of the implications are? I think that the simplest formal definition actually doesn't involve the word Git at all. It is cloud native operations is the way that I think of it. Now, let me draw an, an analog there in that um, one of the things I didn't mention in my intro is that I'm also the author of a book called Cloud Native Patterns. And that book is targeted at developers, software developers and architects who are building these you know, highly distributed applications, these microservice-based applications and helping them understand all the patterns that you have to put in place to be able to make these microservices-based apps work in this ever-changing environment that they run in. All right, links are in the show notes or head to heroku.com slash podcast to listen and subscribe. Again, check the show notes for links or heroku.com slash podcasts. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record the show live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Watch along with your eyeballs at youtube.com slash changelog and participate in the live chat by joining the Go Time FM channel of Gover Slack. Okay, let's do this. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. Today we're talking about different types of writing and whether or not there's anything that can relate to writing code or our day-to-day jobs. So we're joined by two new regulars. Uh, first is Angelica Hill. Angelica, you want to say hi? Hi. And we've got Chris Brando. Chris, you want to say hi? Hello. And then we've got Johnny Borsico, who's here all the time. Well. Sorry, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> It's been yeah. a while. He's like, yeah, he's a fixture on the wall by now. So I'm like, I see Johnny all the time. It's like a weekly thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, good to be here. It's good to have you. And I didn't mean to downplay that. You being here is, is great. <laughs> all right. So um, why don't we just start off by, Chris, I believe you're the one who really loves writing. You've told us this. So what interests you about writing? Let's see. Like, 
for as long as I can remember, I've always been a writer and always like wanted to be a writer. I think like the first time that I tried like writing a book in quotes was like when I was six. I had like, oh, I just want to like write this and like write a story and then like show it to my dad. I was so proud of myself. And I kind of just like kept writing. It's kind of like a, like a lifeblood for me, I guess. It helps me think. And I actually turned that into a college degree. I went to school for creative writing, specializing in fiction, screenwriting, and playwriting. It's just kind of like always been a, a staple of my life. So I guess that's the history of me as a writer. I don't think your teachers would have expected you to translate creative writing to writing go. Probably not. And that's also kind of like the other funny thing about my backstory is that I, I tried to avoid tech specifically like software and computers as much as possible because growing up my dad's a computer scientist and my mom studied computer science so all the family gatherings were like are you going to go into computers like your family like your mom and your dad I was being like no I'm going to be an author I'm going to be a novelist and then somehow I just wound right back right back here all right Angelica I think you are also very excited about this one so so what interests you about writing I am I'm very very excited about um I mean I entered writing via drama and theatre. So I was obsessed with Shakespeare as probably everyone, mostly everyone who has ever met me knows. So I fell in love with the way that writing could bring people's stories to life, could put emotions, feelings, experiences that some people might find really difficult to express were it not if they had didn't have that medium to just sit, write, rewrite, think it through and really get to a place where they're presenting what they want to present to the world in a way that is true to them and their story. So I started by just loving acting and bringing those words to life and then kind of went backwards and realized I didn't really want to do acting and I preferred writing. So similar to Chris, I I went to university for, for English literature and drama, dabbled in playwriting, wasn't all that good. And now I just write for fun, both code and um, poetry. I feel like people are going to think they're on the wrong podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, anything about writing that's really interesting to you or really uh, gets you or has you appealing to this episode? Oh, yeah. For me, I, I discovered early on, um, not even in my career, earlier on in my, in my, I would say, high school career, that writing was about storytelling, right? Writing was about sort of a, imagine you're a kid in high school who finds writing to be sort of a way of communicating and doing so in a, in a much more sort of a, doing so more easily than they can like with words in real life, right? So that was kind of my discovery is that with the right tools, right? With the right sort of a continuous study and picking up, you know, good vocabulary and learning new words and trying to pick up, you know, like a new word and using that in a sentence kind of, you know, every day, every day or something like that. Like I, I, earlier on, I was, I was lucky enough I, and I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was a, it was a teacher. You know, if that's the case, I'm, I'm grateful wherever they are in the universe now. It quickly became clear to me that uh, in order to communicate with the world, whether you're present or, or not, like you have that ability to basically take a, a thought and, and convert that into words and somehow still try to capture what, you would have sort of conveyed where you, you know, speaking to, to someone else, a group of people sort of, a, you know, face to face, like trying to do that for me has always been sort of like something I'm always chasing because uh, again, the power of storytelling, right? So in fast forward through the rest of my career, that still remains true. Probably even more so today than before, like the ability to convey information, right? And somehow put a part of yourself in that communication 
and for someone else to consume, you know, tomorrow or, you know, 10 years from now, there's something just really romantic about that. It's something that really said that, that, that sort of, I gravitate towards that a little bit. And, and, and writing is in everywhere in our lives, right? Whether we realize it or not, um, especially because we are in the industry we are right now. Uh, and, and if you're tuning in now, yes, this is a go podcast. <laughs> we are talking about sort of the effects of writing, but I think, you know, writing, whether it, it be for communicating with coworkers or managers or, or other people, you know, within your broader community, uh, or writing code, I think what you're going to get into, there's an aspect of writing that touches on everything, right? Whether you're actually creating things for publication and print, or whether you actually have to write down, you know, a story before you can tell it on stage, or whether you have to, you know, write a course, you know, whatever the case may be, writing is a, is a through line across all of that. So I guess I'm the outlier here, because I always thought I hated writing. And I don't <laughs> think I actually hated writing. I think I just had experiences I didn't care for where learning it in school, it always felt very subjective and it felt like my, like the way I would take things or I try to express things or whatever didn't seem to translate directly as to what the teacher wanted. So it was always frustrating when like I wasn't doing well in classes or not necessarily terribly, but it just, it never felt like it was for me. But then over time, I mean, I've definitely learned that when you get into tech, being able to write and explain things clearly, like Johnny said, is incredibly valuable, even now, especially with us all being remote. But I've been remote since well before the pandemic. And learning how valuable writing can be for communicating things that you aren't there to answer questions for has sort of opened me up to liking writing more. But I'll definitely say that in the past, I was always just like, no, I don't like writing. It's not for me. I would say though, and I'm sure we'll get into this. Uh, I know Chris has a lot to say on this. Like you write code. Like when we're talking about writing, we're not just talking about like writing literature, writing poems, writing a message to your colleague on Slack. We're talking about physically the code that you write every day. That's writing. And it is yeah. a way, it is a form of communication. Like you're not, and we've touched on this before uh, with, with Chris in our previous conversation, like you're writing code predominantly for your other engineers. Like you go in and they read your work and they edit it and they, as, as kind of, Johnny had touched on, you're writing it and maybe like three years down the line, someone else needs to come. A human being needs to come to your code, read it and be able to understand and process it. I don't know whether Chris, you want to say, say more on that. Yeah, yeah. I think that kind of sums up and describes really well the, the conjecture I have that software engineering is a writing discipline. You know, like I got a degree in the disciplines of playwriting and screenwriting and fiction and, you know, software engineering and, and programming sits right next to that. Like I'm not, I think people kind of tilt their head a little bit sometimes when I say that, you know, oh, I have a creative writing degree and they're like, and sometimes people say like, oh, it's like sad that you're not using your creative writing degree or using your degree in your career. It's like, no, actually like the skills that I learned in college taking my creative writing courses are invaluable and have made me such a better software engineer because I went through those courses, because I learned those things. You're creatively solving problems by writing code. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the actual language looks different, but, you know, screenwriting and playwriting are surprisingly very different things, even though they're conceptually similar. And I think that's kind of like the, the same kind of thing where like, okay, code, it, it looks quite different but it, it falls in line with the rest of the, the things that you can express and the rest of the disciplines that fall within, within writing. 
I mean, even really within any language community, especially I'll speak for the ones I'm familiar with, especially within the Ruby community, for example. Um, one of the things the Rubyists will tell you is that, you know, the expressiveness of the language, right? When you're writing it and, and later on when you have to read it, because we all know we read code a heck of a lot more than we, than we write it. You know, the ability to sort of read, right? And for what you're reading, at least you know, in the English language for what you're reading to make sense as if you're, you're reading prose, right? Um, basically, you're seeking to convey uh, um, clarity, right? So the more expressive the language, the, 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 the more words you can use to express the intent, right? The, the more it feels like, you know, like prose, the more it feels like you have more tools at your disposal to convey, you know, intent, right? Um, something which is very hard. This is what we do all day, every day, you know, whether it be naming rules or, or, or spacing <laughs> to guide the eyes. I mean, all these things play a role. And, and like, once you realize there's a connection between the skill of conveying intent, you know, in your code, that is, it's not just knowing some esoteric, you know, things about the language, really, you're trying to convey intent. And as simple a way as possible, right? Regardless of the language you're using, right? That's always the intent. Once you realize that connection there, right? You become a much better programmer. You become a much better technologist because really what we're doing, all we are as engineers are sort of a, that middle tier, right? Between what the business wants, right? And the technology. They, they can't speak that language directly, okay? And believe me, they try. I mean, if, if you have to... <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is just look at technology out there to see, you know, all these sort of a drag and drop, you know, um, tools and interfaces. Even Amazon came out with, you know, yet another one, you know, back at reInvent a, a couple of months ago. You know, like there's this pursuit within our industry to obviate, to, to make the need for folks like us who write code, right, to make us less important, less relevant, because we can be a bottleneck, right? So if you can somehow reduce that and allow basically the, the the people with with the intent and the and the know how exactly what they want right from a business standpoint to actually implementing the actual execution part right if they could do away with us they absolutely would make no mistake about it they absolutely would get rid of us right but we are that translation layer right so now we have to write for the rest of us who are you know working together to basically you know to again to take the intent and now we have to there's another layer of that say hey like now i'm writing for my fellow engineers now i need to convey intent to them right but still still the ultimate goal is to take some desire right by people paying our, our salaries right and to convert into technology so there's a lot here about understanding and intent and communication right at all layers of the stack if you will right and and knowing how to write whether it be to communicate with the lay folks who are not you know engineers and writing code or whether it be you know us talking to each other it's all about how well can you relay intent through writing and I think a, an interesting point on that, too, um, is how that compares to what some of the other writing disciplines look like and the respect for the writer within those disciplines. Like another interesting thing of difference between screenwriting and playwriting is how much the writer is, I want to say respected, but how big a role they play. In playwriting, like 
when you put on a stage play, you try and stick to the writer's intent as much as possible. The writer, the playwright is sacred, but in screenwriting and in movies, like the, the screenwriter is just like, oh, someone that happened to produce this story. But it's like the director that we really care about that kind of shapes that narrative. And I think too, on your point of like necessity of the writers, I think an, another interesting point of, of contrast there would be with kind of like the publishing industry and like books and novels. Like often a lot of people that write books are not, you know, professional writers and they're just, you know, putting together a story because they have the knowledge to tell that story. And you have editors that come in and those editors help refine and create more polished story for the end consumers. And I think there's some interesting things you can pull from those other disciplines into our own to make building and writing software like a bit more coherent. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that some people would think you don't apply writing to code. And then it's not that hard to, to realize or doesn't take that many steps to sort of realize that people have sort of caught on to that connection and even experimented with it. So when you see testing frameworks like Cucumber, where you're literally writing paragraphs to, to design a test, people have gone as far as experimenting with it. So it is like writing code is definitely different than writing, you know, writing a play in, in many ways. But it's, it's also interesting that people have come to the point where they can actually write tests in a very similar way to how you would write a story. Yeah, and I think that uh, brings up like another thing I've, I've spent some time thinking about, which is kind of the comparison of software engineering is like writing versus software engineering is writing. I kind of feel like the using prose to write your test is more toward the, okay, like, this is a good way to understand things, so we're just going to borrow this from, I guess you could probably say like fiction or novel writing or that kind of structure of writing and try and apply it to software engineering, which I think is a good first step, right? It does make tests easier to consume, but it is like awkward because you're, you're applying an analogy on top of software engineering, which is kind of like any other type of analogy. Now there's some like software engineering is like gardening or like construction or like something, and it, and it fits well at first, and then you start to see the, the places where it doesn't quite meet. Um, and I think the, the next step we kind of need to make is like, okay, like they have some nice things in these other disciplines of writing. How can we take that and bring it into software engineering and adjust it to like make it so that we can write tests that are easy to read and are pleasant to read, but don't necessarily come with the baggage that comes from like, say the looseness of trying to write things with, with prose and paragraphs. So are there any specifics that you would like sort of want to focus on first. I guess like the first thing for me, at least that comes to mind is when you're learning how to write persuasive papers, you always like have to start with a hypothesis of some sort that you're trying to prove. So like, is that something that could apply to maybe tests or something along those lines? Or I guess what connections are you seeing? I feel like the one of the biggest connections we could probably pull is the kind of process and format that most other writing disciplines go through when they want to produce something. Like, I feel like when we write code, we always want to jump into writing the code, right? That's the first thing we're like, oh, we want to start writing, by, is whether it's like by writing the test or whether it's by like writing a prototype and hacking it together, that's like the first thing we want to do. And in most other writing disciplines, that's not what you do, right? If you want to write a book, you don't sit down and write chapter one and start writing your story. <laughs> and the same thing's true. You don't start, oh, write the opening scene for your 
screenplay, when you sit down and write it, you have these other documents, whether that's an outline or a treatment in screenwriting um, or character bios, right? You have all of these other documents and all those other um, forms of information that you kind of play and experiment with a story before you actually lay it down in its final form. And I think that's something that we kind of desperately need to start doing in software engineering. Like so many of the projects I've been involved in and some of the companies I've worked at have like a, a little bit of a culture of writing like scope and design docs, but it's definitely not very robust. And I think what that ultimately leads to is kind of the result that you'd wind up with if you just sat down one day and started writing a book and tried to kind of write it all the way through instead of like sitting down and kind of planning it out some more. And I think what's important to note there too is that it is contained within the software engineering sphere. Like I think there are other people that do other type of planning and documents, right? Whether it's product people or business people, and those need to be done. But I think those are kind of separate from what software engineers need to do to kind of produce those pre-code documents. I think we do try to do that. We're just not consistent about it, right? So yeah. over the years, I've heard all kinds of you know tooling and mnemonics and, and things that we we sort of try to introduce into our workflow as engineers, right, be, be, before we jump to the code. And you have folks that are sort of on the extremes of that. You know, you have the folks that are like, ah, let's just start writing the code and we'll figure it out as we go. Because, you know, working code is, is better than, you know, you know whatever, whatever the thing is, right? I mean, they, they have a point to a point, right? But, and then, you, and then you have those on the other side who are basically, you know, they, they get stuck in the analysis, right? The analysis paralysis stuff. They spend all their times, you know, in, in, in drawing tools, you know, creating boxes and arrows and never actually execute anything, right? I think the ideal, really like most things in life is to not be in the extremes of things, right? Is to really find the middle ground, right? That allows you to make progress, you know, still while having a plan, right? And then seeing, you know, you, you, you make an incremental change. The same thing we, we preach, you know, engineers, basically that immediate feedback loop or that short feedback loop, basically you make a change and see what's broken and you go back to, you know, you make an adjustment again and then you, know, you can make more progress. And then, so that feedback loop, basically you don't have to sort of jump right into writing the code. You write the code when you know what you're building. Sometimes you don't know what you're building yet, right? So I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the let's just jump, jump into the code and figure it out thing, which is why personally one of the tools I use right off the bat is basically if I can use either readme-driven development or jumping into something like LucyChart or Draw.io, whatever it is, right? Just to get an idea of what's going on. Another tool I use is a, a WebsiteDiagrams.com. Um, I've been using that for years um, to create a, a sequence diagrams, right? How do things interact? How do components within the system interact with each other? So a lot of times I will discover that I'm what I'm missing when I go through that exercise, right? Like if, if you think nothing from what I'm saying right now, sequence diagrams, they are your best friend. Trust me on this, right? Because you will, it will force you to think, okay, what's the entry point into this thing that I'm building, right? Where is it, is it coming from? What is the shape of the data, right? What do I need here, right? When, when I get to this point, what is the other thing that... So it's almost like you're weaving a story. You, you're making a, a plot, right? <laughs> you're, you're coming up. You're, you're, really, it, it is storytelling if you, if you squint, right? <laughs> it is storytelling because you mean, who are the cast? Who's the cast in, in this story, right? This execution of, of a business process, whatever it is, right? Who are the actors? Who's involved? What's the setting, right? What does the stage look like? What's the environment, right? 
or you know this is best case scenario right this actor says this this one replies that you know this so if you see the world as as that the world that you're in as that stage and you, you can script things right you can then account for okay well if this doesn't happen this actor then has to you know do this and like also like you're adding improv <laughs> into the whole mix right <laughs> so now you're like then that, that allows you to see a much bigger so again not taking that to 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 an extreme whereby you're trying to think of all contingencies and things like that but starting out right with some high level view of this is what my desired end goal right and these are the actors that are a part of these ecosystem that are a part of this play that i'm trying to put together right and seeing what's the interaction me back and forth between them right that will help you uncover a ton of problems up front right again you will have you know basically you know even if it's a back and napkin drawing right of of what it is you need to account for right that puts you in a way better position right so some planning up front right does wonders right and it's the same again it's a technique that you can learn from the writing world you can bring that into into your your engineering practice and and it works wonders and i, I think an important thing on that too is like this is like a, a very new thing i think in software engineering i mean software engineering is a very young field as it is so i think it's important to like explore and find the tools and continue to try and find the tools that work, you know, for this process, you know, for this way of, of creating software. Because I think sometimes we start doing something and then the whole industry kind of converges and it becomes like best practice. And like, that's what everybody does. And it's like, it hasn't had enough time to like, actually become a best practice. Like, we've been doing it for two years. There's no way that this thing is a best practice. We haven't written enough software with it. So I think it's important to like, whether it's diagrams or whether it's prose writing or whether it's actively like rapid prototyping, whatever it is that you use to like kind of explore the space and establish what it is you're going to create, we need to like really try and explore the edges of that before we even begin to think about like settling down. And I think a big part of it, that exploration is also documenting how we're doing these sorts of explorations. So I think that oftentimes we don't document that process because it's hard to kind of stop and be disciplined about writing down what you're doing when you're in this frenzy of coming up with like good ideas and being all excited about everything. And it seems difficult to distill that down into something that's generally useful for people. But I think also, you know, at this point in time, we don't, we don't need it to be generalized. Like just write down what you're doing, write down what you're thinking, write down the process that you're using and we'll generalize it later. But I, I do think that's like super important not to like cut off or constrain how we go about this kind of design and planning process for our software uh, too early. I find that if you also tell yourself like what, what mode you're in, right, you're giving yourself the permission right, to, to ideate, you know, if that's the stage uh, of the design that you're in. Or if you say, okay, right now I'm in spike mode. I don't know what I don't know. Doing TDD wouldn't really help me much because, you know, really you do TDD when you kind of know what it is that you want to build, what it is that you're trying to get, right? That's when TDD is useful, not when you have zero clue what you're building. So depending on what mode you're in, right, am, am I in information gathering? Am I, do I need to go read a few Wikipedia articles to know, you know, what, what a particular uh, topic no, topic or, or theory is, right? It's okay to jot down notes. It's okay to not be organized. It's okay to just be free flowing with ideas as they come. Because you just, and that's the mode you're in, right? Once you've done enough information gathering, which shouldn't last, you know, too long, however, how long that is, I don't know. That's going to depend, you know, on a case-by-case basis. But the idea is to have enough to have a certain degree, a certain level of confidence that you, you know, given the, the objective, 
that you kind of have a general idea of what direction you need to go. You, know, you have a general idea of what it is that, that needs to be part of your solution, right? And then you refine from there. But give yourself permission, right, to, to explore. Give yourself permission to think, right, as opposed to jumping into code and then trying to do the thinking as you're trying to do the execution, right? You know, it's not ready, fire, aim, <laughs> right? Do you think some of this is made worse by the fact that when we're first learning to code, um, whether it's university or whatever, a vast majority of the things we do are on an individual basis. And then we get thrown into this, basically a company, a team, whatever, where we have to work with others and processes that sort of worked on our own start to fall apart because we need to be communicating with other people. I guess an example I can think of is like an author who's writing one novel can probably get away with whatever process works for them. But if you have like a whole team writing TV shows or something, that's very unlikely to work. You can't just have one person keeping everything in their head. The whole team has to sort of communicate on character development and things like that. This is actually something that I've been uh, thinking about recently um, because I, I saw a thread on Twitter where someone gave like a really good explanation of what, I think it was stemmed off continuous integration, but like what, you know, extreme programming and, and pair programming and all of that, like what was the genesis of that and how it was more about synchronous team-based software engineering versus what we're more used to, which is the asynchronous individual-based software engineering. Um, and I think a lot of the time when we think about writing disciplines, we think of that kind of asynchronous individual base, right? If you talk about novel writing, most novels are in that way. Screenplays, plays, most of those things are written that way. Sometimes you'll have a couple of people. But as you pointed out, TV shows are absolutely not written that way. TV shows have a writer's room and everybody is in that room and everybody is working together. And those are two extremely different methods of writing. And you can't really take the techniques of, say, the individual way you write a novel and just like just like pull them over to a writer's room that that won't work and that's sort of the situation that we're in right now as an industry where we you know everybody was excited and talking about this kind of writer's room style of doing software engineering and we just started plucking the tiny little things that we saw we're like oh that sounds nice that looks nice like oh yeah we can like sort of do pair programming and we can like sort of do test driven development we can sort of do continuous integration i think continuous integration is like a really interesting point here too because it's like We've taken the term continuous integration and left what it means, right? It's like continually integrating. That means you're literally like continually putting all of the code together, which implies you don't have gates where you have to like stop and check. It's like the code goes in and you can check it afterward, which ironically is like some of the ways that like novels are written, right? Like you, you put it into form and then you send it to the editor. You don't say, oh, can I add this paragraph here before the editor allows you to put it in? But like we, we've taken these terms and then we've just tried to put them into a different domain. And I think what would help here is if we recognize that and separated them. So we understand, okay, these are the techniques you use if you're going to do an asynchronous individual focused software development process. And these are the tools that you use for a synchronous team-based development process and have a good understanding of that and not try to commingle the two. I assume that some of those could be not commingled in the way that you're referring to, but like if you're building one small part of a project and like it's sort of siloed off as like, you know, John's going to build this one specific piece, you can kind of in your head at that point use a little bit of that, I guess. But then the hard part's communicating that to your team later, which I don't know if that would end up causing more problems than just sticking with the, you know, the, the writing room style where you have a whole team the whole time. I think the writing room style is definitely a bit more difficult, I think. I mean, it's extremely difficult now because, you know, 
pandemic. We can't all be in the same room together. We can't all be like working in close quarters with a large group of people. But I do think like the techniques are adaptable to asynchronous style programming, but you have to be much more disciplined about them. I think, you know, the continuous integration example, once again, is like a really good one because like if you have continuous integration, then you have to trust that an individual or and you want to apply it to like individual based development, you have to trust that an individual will not be able to put things into the code base that will cause catastrophic problems, which means that your testing infrastructure needs to be really good. Everybody needs to understand the style of the code base. You probably need to do larger periodic reviews of your code base to make sure that the style hasn't crept in a way you don't want it to. And I think the problem is that unlike with the synchronous method, where if you don't have these things, right, if you don't have a good testing framework, it will be extremely painful. In the asynchronous method, we just kind of deal with it, right? Like if the tests take a long time to run, we resolve that by like running the tests less often. Or if the tests aren't as uh, solid as we'd like them to be, we kind of just get away with that by having more code review or spending more time on code reviews. So I think there's a lot of good things we can pull from, from the synchronous style into the asynchronous style. But I think kind of back to your original point, I think there are some times when we really do want to break up software and build up building software into pieces where like individuals can just go off and write things on their own. Because at a point, you know, you can't have a writer's room with 200 people. That's that's too much. So at a point, you have to start breaking it up if you want to kind of produce these larger and larger things. And I think we just have to kind of navigate and explore that space in a way we we haven't yet. And I think base level involves just a lot more discipline around understanding that the synchronous things, or the things from the synchronous style are really adaptable and really good to have. Like, I don't think anyone would say, I don't want to have a robust set of tests for my software. Like, of course you do. And I think the thing is to like actually build in those habits to our processes to make sure that we are doing and adhering to them and we're not letting that slip because just because we can. And I would say it is very much kind of outside of just the engineers and the team. It's, it needs to be a team-wide process, discussion, conversation. So like I'm a product manager, like a big part of setting up this kind of process is the product, the project, the engineer managers, all the engineers getting together and deciding, okay, this is our release schedule. Okay, this is how we're going to chunk out work. Okay, so if you're working on a spike, are you also going to do the, the proof of concept? How are we going to allow the rest of the team to have input on that? Are we going to have a demo? Are we going to have everyone kind of come together and decide who's pair programming and what? I think it's really on a project by project, but also a team by team basis. Because a lot of the conversations I'm having with my engineers when we're thinking about huge projects we're building out are, okay, is this something that you feel like you can just go away and do by yourself? Is the rest of the team okay with you going off, doing a proof of concept and coming back? Or do we want to have a working session where we all brainstorm all the different proof of concepts we could do and we all come together and then we go into development? So I do, I agree. It's kind of very much with, with Chris in that we're in a place where we really need to be open to just trying stuff out, experimenting, seeing what kind of projects are able to be split up and what Projects really do need to be more organized and, and much more held close to the whole team being involved. But I would say this is not just on engineering, like everyone in your team needs to be bought into this because if the engineers are working in one way and then you have like a project manager or a product manager come in and be like, no, like, what are you doing? Then that can just throw, throw a wrench in the beautiful processes you're trying out. I have a theory. You have a theory? Yeah. And it is based on sort of lived experience, right? I think in large organizations, 
where the time from idea, right, as communicated by the product team or the leadership or whatever, what have you, the time from idea, right, coming down and, and your team having been sort of designated as having, as owning a piece of that, right, to, to bring it to fruition. The time from idea to actual execution is so long, right? The bigger you are, the more levels um, exist between that idea and, you know, the people doing the execution in terms of the coding. The more those layers, the more the engineer, as soon as they hear anything, right, about they get a general idea, a general sense of what needs to be done. They know by the time all the dust settles, they're going to be waiting for so long. <laughs> so I think there's a sort of this, this, this sort of an impetus that as soon as I get some degree of clarity, right, I want to start jumping into the code because I don't know when, you know, this, this thing's going to change. Is the carpet going to be pulled under me while I'm doing this? Like there's this desire that, you know, when you work in very large organizations, you want to contribute, you want to be effective, right? So, which is very different from when you're in a startup environment or a smaller organization, you know, that you might have a handful of, of, of colleagues where the distance between idea, right, to you, you know, uh, doing a spike and experimenting and doing R&D, doing a prototype, whatever it is, that there's, there's so much less sort of, you know, bureaucracy and, and layers between those two things that this is the point where you, you, you do need to spend a bit more time right? Thinking about what needs to be done because you can just hear something in a hallway, right? And, and be at your desk, click, you know, cranking out code the, the very same day, right? Just to get something working. And perhaps in some environments that they, that is exactly what you need to do, you know, if, if your survival depends on how, how fast can you ship features, you know, today and whatnot. But so th I think what we're saying here makes sense, but some of it is going to make more sense depending on where you are in your, in your career, where you are in, in within the organization in which you work. So it's not, you know, one broad brush, you know, saying, hey, we should all do it this way. I think there are lots of lessons here, right, uh, across the board, right? Some of it's going to apply more to if you are, you know, in, in a small team with, uh, you know, fewer layers, right? And some of it's not going to be, it's not going to work out so well if you're in a much larger team with you know, a lot more layers between you and those ideas. So again, lots of ideas. You kind of have to, what you, what you need as an engineer, what you need to know, right? Your maturity comes in the ability to discern which environment am I in? Which one of these tools is applicable in this environment, right? That's, that's, that's what machines can't, you know, do for you that that insight, that that gut feeling, or, or that that uh, maturity that comes with, with doing the work, um, working with other people, communicating with other people. You know, the writings that you get, the writings that you do need to send back up. Like you know, all these things. These, these are the things that play a role into your ability, right, to be effective in those environments, knowing which environment you're in. And that's something that you know, time is gonna help you get better at. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's no quick way to acquire that knowledge. Um, but over time, you should be focusing on basically asking yourself, right? Every time you get a promotion or every year or whatever the cadence, you know, you want, you want to pick is how well am I able to sort of discern, right? From business to execution, how, like how effective can I be within this environment and by where effectiveness is not judged by how quickly can I get to writing code, right? It's how quickly can I actually take the intent, right? And do something with it. 
Yeah, I think that brings up an interesting thought in my head of how, like, you know, we as an industry compare ourselves to, like, construction a lot, which I think is, like, not a good comparison. We're not really anything like it. But I think uh, an apt analogy or metaphor here would be, like, you know, if you're going to build, like, a, a small, like, shed or something, like a, a small building, you can more or less, like, hop into it. it you don't have to do a lot of planning. But if you're going to go build a skyscraper, you need to do, like, a lot more planning and there's a lot more people involved, a lot more logistics. So the way that you build those two different kinds of buildings looks extremely different. And I feel like we as an industry kind of don't like that. And we just want to have like, here's the one way that you build software that's applicable to like building a shed and building a skyscraper, right? It's like, no, those are two very different types of things. And like the tools you use for one are obviously very different from the tools you use for the other. And what would be appropriate for one is not appropriate for the other. So I think to your point, Johnny, we have to like do a lot more I think not just people learning this as they go, but us as an industry taking more of a conscious effort to sit down and say, all right, like figure out this scale of the type of software that you're trying to build, and then we can tell you and help you with what tools that you should be using. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Equinix Metal, globally interconnected, fully automated bare metal. Equinix Metal gives you hardware at your fingertips with physical infrastructure at software speed. Accelerate your workloads with fully automated bare metal that's secure, powerful, and cost-effective. This is the promise of the cloud delivered on bare metal. Equinix Metal makes it easier than ever to take advantage of the unmatched global reach and connectivity ecosystem made possible by Equinix, which includes more than 220 data centers, across 63 metros, making interconnection easy. And they're obsessed with making bare metal even more awesome. Seriously, check out these features. 60-second deploys, hourly pricing, a customer success team that engages over Slack, x86, Intel, AMD, and ARM, single tenant, NVMe, and SSD storage, RESTful API, first-class DevOps integrations, Equinix Fabric integration, support for enterprise OSs and open-source Linux OSs, air-gapped installs without a public IP, no installed agent or keys, extensive open-source love and support, plus so much more. Visit info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog, get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog. We've talked a lot about the prepping phase, like, you know, sort of getting up to how we can be better at planning for when we're building something. Are there parts of writing that you think apply to the actual like process of writing code and like once you're actually into the writing phase? Absolutely. <laughs> so I think this is kind of like a combined like as you're writing and then as you're maintaining the code that you've written, a really good thing that we could borrow from other disciplines is this idea of like a manual of style where it's more about guiding people so that we all kind of stay on the same, like stay in the same area instead of like giving people specific rules. Um, uh, that was like a really messy explanation. So this is what I'm trying to say is like, I think one of the things that we can borrow in, 
from writing into software engineering is this idea of like kind of doing continual comprehensive reviews of our code as we're going to make sure that it's all in sync and all makes sense. I gave a talk at GopherCon a couple of years ago that hit on this point a little bit where we're like really good at like the, the copy editing level of kind of reviewing code, right? We can find your syntactical problems or your uh, like misuse of APIs or like some bugs that you've written, but they're very localized usually to like, okay, this specific thing that I'm reviewing for your code. And it's really hard, especially with our tooling, to go review like, oh, I know that we have this thing, but it's like similar in this other part of the code base. So if we're going to change it here, we have to change it over here as well. And as code bases get larger, that becomes harder and harder to do. And I think that's the role that style guides play, or manuals of style play, is in helping you catch those sorts of shifts and changes in your code base as you go. Um, and I think the size of your manual style shifts as your code base or as the collection of code bases you have grows. Like I think when you start, you have a very small manual style because like you don't have much code. And then as you get more and more and more code, you add more and more and more to it. And the purview of what you're adding shifts as well. Like the, for instance, like the Chicago manual style, I think is like a thousand pages, but it started out as literally just a bunch of style sheets for the University of Chicago press for the books that they were writing. And they were like, hey, these are pretty similar. So let's take them and compile them together and then have some general rules of writing. And basically every publisher has a manual style, which is like when you go pick up a book from like O'Reilly or from No Starch Press, they look the books all look the same. They have the same feel. They're written in the same sort of way, even though the authors are always different. And that comes out of the manual of style and the editorial process. And I think that's something that we should definitely borrow into software engineering so that when, when you see a code base that you're working on, you're like, oh, this group of people wrote this code base. Like, you shouldn't be able to say, ah, like, well, Angelico wrote this part of the code base and John wrote this other part of the code base and I can definitely tell because <laughs> things are so different in their styles. Like that, sh you shouldn't be able to hear individual people's voices when you're like reading that code. If I may, I think in the Go community or the Go programming language more specifically, I think it is harder to see sort of individual styles uh, come through because I think that's one of the... And that was a desired effect, right, uh, of the originators of the language, right, that that it all sort of flowed similarly, and which is one of the things that, heck, even I sort of, you know, when I'm advocating, you know, for the use of Go, I'm like, hey, like, you can go and take a look at any Go project out on GitHub, and it'll be readable to you, right? You may not know exactly what's going on, you know, in terms of the domain you know, for, for that the solution is, you know, is what problem is trying to solve, but you will be able to read that Go code, right? That's not true for every language, right? You know, I've seen, you know, again, because I'm familiar with Ruby and, and most recently um, prior to Go, I could definitely tell, right, when, you know, which coworker wrote what part of the code base, what did their, their imprint on there, right? So the, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, where we run into trouble is if we try to associate ourselves too, too much with our tools, right? So to use the analogy used about the, 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 the publishers and the, their style guides, right? The, the, if somebody hears that, okay, you're going to be, you know, contributing to this book, you're going to be writing this book or contribute, be a contributing author or whatever it is. And, you know, but your voice is really not going to come through that much because we follow this style guide, 
you're probably going to feel a little less mm. enthused, right, about writing. Because you we want that to be an experience. You want somebody to experience you through the pages. And perhaps, you know, and again, because, I, you know, I, when I read those books, I do feel that the style is consistent. Um, you know, and that may be a, the nature of technical, you know, manuals and technical things. You know, uh, that's certainly not true for, you know, um, novels or, or uh, you know, like, sci-fi stories or what have you, right? You know, you're definitely going to get a feel for, okay, this particular author, I like the way they write, right? So you can kind of, that's something you want, right? But if we remove ourselves from what we are hired to do, right? If we we decouple ourselves from our tooling, right? Like I do want, like I'm there to solve a problem, not to necessarily write code, right? So my individuality, my traits as a person, I don't really care i want to enjoy writing the code but i don't really care to you know that somebody can look at the piece of code and says yes that's johnny's code that doesn't matter to me as much right (laughs) because or it shouldn't i should say and and again i'm speaking for myself here um so i think in the go in the go language there's less opportunity to for your own sort of obviously there's going to be you can see you know you can understand the difference between code written by you know somebody who's a veteran versus somebody who's who's a junior right i think that's true of every of every language but beyond that given you know similarly experienced you know engineers the fact that i can't quite tell right without you know doing a get blame without you know, the fact that i can't quite tell who wrote that code i think is a feature right not a bug right so i think you should find ways to to express yourself and and demonstrate your your individuality through perhaps your writing, how you communicate right, with other pe- folks on your team, right? I think there's a way more opportunity for that, right? Whether it be written or verbal or how, you know, however, you know, Slack, whatever short messages, you know, I think there's the, these are the places where you have a greater, you know, opportunity to communicate and do so quite well as opposed to trying to do so in your code. So I think I probably explained what I was saying wrong. Um, uh, I think voice was probably the wrong word to use there. I guess the thing that I'm kind of aiming at is less so like, I think for most experienced Go engineers, we do write Go in like this very similar way, even if we're expressing very different things. And I think there is some space for self-expression within those bounds. But I think we're all kind of familiar with the, oh, this Go was written by a Java programmer, or this Go was written by a C++ programmer, or like this Go was written, like that sort of thing is, is less about like the expressiveness and the the voice of the individual person and more like trying to borrow idioms where they don't really fit into the language, right? We have a language, we have our own idioms, which result in a specific type of style that you can you can see. Like when you sit down and you read Go code that was written by an experienced Go engineer, it does have that certain feel that you're talking about, Johnny. But if you kind of just pick up Go code that might be written by someone who isn't as experienced, then it doesn't have that same feel. And I think what style guides and manual style can help us do is really help people that don't have that experience and don't understand the idioms as well, understand them so that they can more quickly write Go code that has that feel and that style of the the Go code that we all love. So to put this into a concrete example, the thing that keeps sticking out in my head is You often hear people talking about keeping the happy path on the left and everything else sort of gets indented as you go through code, but there's nothing that forces you to do that with Go. I think that's just something that all of us, as we get more experience, realize that having that style consistent is really useful. So we all just sort of do it. So I assume, Chris, that's what you mean when you're talking about, you know, style guides is things like that that aren't explicitly necessary, but can be really helpful when you're jumping through the code to sort of always know that it's going to be in that same style. 
Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly a good example of something that would go in a manual style. And, and I think we, we have that, right? In code review comments, that's one of the things of like, you know, you, you outdent the success path. But I think sometimes we just need a little bit more nuance to add to there to help people kind of understand why. Like I've, I've gone through this process with a lot of my coworkers where I'm like, oh, like we don't need to use an if else here. We should rearrange the code so the success path is like not indented. And when I explain to them, they're like, oh, okay, now like I understand that. I get that now. And I think that's kind of what the, the purpose of a lot of manuals of style tend to be. Like as you get more familiar with the manual, you have to refer to it less and it just becomes something that you like understand. And then sometimes you understand how you should break the rules of the manual and where it's appropriate to break them and where it's not appropriate to break them, which I think is a, a general thing that comes with rules, right? You're not really allowed to break the rules until you understand them. And I think like that, that could be helpful, but I think that's like the missing gap right now um, when it comes to like really having code bases that a wealth of people can can kind of contribute to. Because I think it's still pretty hard to hire experienced Go engineers. We're a very popular language, uh, and I think it takes like a number of years of writing Go full-time, uh, and especially writing Go around other experienced Go engineers full-time before you can really kind of write with that style. Because I also have known people that have written Go code for a long time, but they've written it surrounded by a bunch of people that are writing Java Go. And so their style just becomes Java Go, and they're not kind of incorporating and, and feeling that same level of you know, the Go style. Is our idioms uh, or the the idioms that we value so much, right? When we talk about idiomatic go, you know, for the longest time, and I think still to this day, you know, there's a there's a strong sort of a, uh, if you are a newbie to the go community, it won't be long before you hear about, oh, this is not idiomatic go that you're writing right now, right? Or or how have you done that? You're writing Gava or Gooby <laughs> or whatever, right? <laughs> so there's this sort of there's this hill that you have to sort of climb uh, in addition to learning the language. As a newbie, you now also have to learn the way that the people that are in this community want you to write, you know, in the language, right? So there's like two barriers there that you have to you have to surmount. In his article, um, Dave Cheney, who wrote the Zen of Go, we actually had uh, Dave on the show um, to talk about the Zen of Go. I think this was a talk either at GopherCon or another conference, but he also, uh, as he usually tends to do, basically wrote it out as well as as an essay. And he talked about sort of a you know that that very problem that we basically we create this sort of artificial barrier, right? That perhaps those of us who have been doing Go for a long time don't realize is a barrier, right? That we put in front of people that are learning the language and thereby might actually ha- end up having an, a negative effect, right? And the adoption of the language by those people. Because if they see us as being a bunch of snobby, you know, elitist people who want, you know, the language to be used in a certain way and to be written in a particular way, whether it compiles or not, right? <laughs> basically eschewing the fact, the technicalities of it, you know, then that can be a turnoff for some. And it won't be long if you go, you know, search through the Reddits and things like that to, to sort of get that sense that, you know, some folks didn't really like that very specific, you know, regardless of the language itself, that very specific aspect of the Go community because we just sounded kind of elitist in, in our way of saying that, hey, you should be writing Go this way. Now, as somebody who's been doing Go for a while, the value of idiomatic Go for me is, again, that I can go on another code base that has been written by long-time developers, long-time Go developers who have been writing Go in the idiomatic way. And that helps me with reading that code and understanding what's going on heck of a lot faster than I would otherwise. So that's the value, okay? So again, detaching the tool, right, and, and the end goal, right, we should all 
write idiomatic Go code, right? Idioms are a thing that communities sort of develop naturally, right? For, for communication purposes. It makes communication a bit frictionless, right? You know, because everybody kind of knows, you know, when you use slang term, my teenager, so uses some slang terms that I have to go look up sometimes. I'm like, I can, you know, like I'll try to keep up with the times, you know? So it's like when they're talking in order for me to sort of keep up, right? With what they're saying, I have to, you know, also go out there and learn, right? I have to keep learning. So my point here is that idioms are a tool, right? For us to communicate better. That same tool can have a negative side to it, right? If we use it as a barrier, right? For those that are basically trying to adopt the language. What we can do as those who are already in the community that find value in the idioms is to, you know, I'll stretch a hand and says, hey, yes, I know, you know, you're getting flack for not writing it in an idiomatic way, quote unquote, but here's what would make it right more idiomatic, right? Uh, yes, I know you want to ignore your errors here, but we don't like to do that within the Go community, right? We want you to handle your errors. I know you might be a little verbose, but this is the reason why, right? So again, these are opportunities, right, to help somebody out, right, who is coming from a different language or perhaps goes their first language. They have really no idea. Like they're just following and going with the flow here, right? It's an opportunity for us, right, who are already part of the community to make it more welcoming, right, by sort of helping to remove those barriers, or at least when those mistakes are made, mistakes, quote unquote, when you see that, right, to not pounce on, on that individual, but really say, hey, your solution works. <laughs> it compiles great. That's, you know, good. Like you're learning. When you're learning, it's not about making your code perfect. It's about making it work. Now that you've got it to work, this is how we can make it more idiomatic, more like what you're going to see out there in the Go community because the because of the value that we ascribe to that thing. And you know, here's the why, not just because we think we're cool, but here's the why, right? So again, the tools and how you use them make a huge difference. I think a style guide that explained exactly why would be hugely valuable as a newbie. I have had multiple people tell me that my Go code is not the way that Go should be written. And that is my first question. I'm like, why? Like, I need to know <laughs> why. Like, I Google around, I'm like, is there a Go best practices style guide I can go to? And I'm, you know, I have wonderful, helpful people who direct me to good Go that I can just read through and look, but there's no concrete place where I'm like, okay, this is the good Go style guide as Chris referred to it that I can kind of follow and see where I can take liberties and, and kind of structure it differently and what I can't and what I need to kind of learn and stick to as someone trying to learn the language. And I think on that as well, I think part of the, maybe it's like the marketing of Go that we've kind of bungled a bit here, but I think there's this kind of uh, way that we sell it where it's like, oh, the syntax is so simple, it only takes you a couple of days to pick it up. But it's like, mm. there is a lot more that we expect of you when you write Go than just being able to write the syntax. So I think that's something that we kind of, I think a manual style can really help with that is like help people understand like, yeah, you can, you can pick up the syntax in like a weekend, but it's going to take you a very long time to sit down and understand all of the idioms that we have and why those idioms are there and how you use them and how and why you might want to violate them sometimes and, you know, really understand the nuance of them. And I feel like, you know, a manual style can can shorten that, right? It's the same thing with like, uh, you know, go funked where it's like, okay, well, I don't like how it does it this way. But it's like we as a community have decided that this is how we want go good to, to look and to feel. But there's other things like go lint where it's like, okay, well, maybe for this specific situation, we, we don't want to adhere to this rule. And there's ways of ignoring that rule in specific instances and specific circumstances. And I think 
we just kind of need more of that and need more of that explanation. Mm-hmm. For sure. I would say another thing is like picking the right time to sort of enforce or tell people about those style guide things. Um, as, as an example, if I was going to start writing a book with O'Reilly or some other publisher at some point. Is that a hint? That's, it's not actually. Um, I've, okay. I haven't talked to O'Reilly. So. <laughs> but like, I doubt the first thing they're going to do is send me their style guide and say, you need to follow this style guide. Like Instead, they're mm. going to be like, you know, give us a rough draft, an outline. Let's go through these steps first. And then at some point, we'll have to get the style guide involved and we'll understand why it's there. And they could even explain, you know, we like this style to be consistent because then the audience knows they can pick up a book and it's going to be in a similar style that they expect. And it really helps the reader. And I think it's the same in Go Code a lot of the time. It's just it helps people reading the code. That's the biggest benefit almost always. But like knowing that and knowing when to actually present those versus like somebody who's just learning the language they've been programming for two weeks and they have a bug or, you know, they're, they're figuring it out. And then somebody jumps in and says, oh, this isn't idiomatic. It's like is this really the time to be bringing this up right now? Like now you're just making it a barrier for no reason. And at that point, they might just be like, oh, I'll just try Python then. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's an interesting point too for something we're talking about earlier, which is like when and how we do code reviews. Because I think sometimes people do start to focus on like, oh, this isn't idiomatic at the code review because that's basically the only tool we have in affecting what the style of the code base is. Like a lot of places, if you're like, you know, the the dreaded technical debt of like trying to get that schedule, trying to go back and like clean up the code base and add consistency is just not something that we've built into our processes. I think that we as a community and then I think as a wider industry need to understand like we can't just have one code review. We, we do have to sit down and, and periodic points look at the, the whole of the code base and make sure that we have this consistent style because that's just like maintenance. I, I kind of think of it, I had this analogy of like your kitchen. Like if you never clean anything in your kitchen until you need it, it's going to be a, a lot harder to clean things and your kitchen is going to be absolutely disgusting. And then at some point you're just going to like clean everything and your kitchen will be beautiful and you'll be so excited. But then if you don't, keep cleaning things as you use them, you're just going to get back to that bad state. And I feel like that is exactly what we do with our software so much. It's like, oh man, we've done all of this so bad. Let's say cleaning our kitchen is like a rewrite. Instead of like just cleaning it, we like demolish the whole kitchen and build a new one every time. Um, (laughs) And it's like, yeah, it's extremely (laughs) expensive. And, we just need to have better ways of like going in and being like, okay, no, we just, you just have to like clean the pots and pans and the dishes. And it's like, you can, you can let them sit for a day or two. That'll be fine. But maybe you should like let them soak. So it doesn't get all like really difficult to get the, you know, dehydrated food off of the pots and pans, but it's, it's okay to leave things for some time, but we are going to come back and we are going to clean the kitchen. And that's, we have to do that with our code. We have to come back and we have to clean up our code bases. We have to just be good citizens and good maintainers. I guess this has me thinking of when I first started working at Google, they have like two separate different reviews. One is like a code review and the other is like a style review. And until you get, I think they call it proficient, I don't know what it is, but there's some sort of style thing in any language you're going to write code in that eventually you have to go through a separate review that sort of reviews the style for writing that code, like whatever language it is. So like to give you an example, the first couple like Java things I wrote basically had to be reviewed by one person who's reviewing the code for like correctness within the team. And then there's another person who has like Java. He's like an expert in Java is the best way to put it. So he's like a veteran. He knows what the style guide there is. And he can look at the code just for style stuff. Um, And eventually you write a big enough piece of like code that you submit that is meant to sort of demonstrate your understanding of the style guide of Java. And from that point on, you don't need the style guide review. I mean, somebody can still point something out in a code review, but it's like not necessary from that point on. 
And I'm kind of wondering if that approach might actually be better for some companies where you really help people understand your company style guide and the things that are important there. And then you sort of move on. I know at the time it's kind of frustrating to be like, I've got to go through both of these reviews, but you do learn a lot in the process of like how this company does it. And I'm even thinking of, I worked with one team that did Ruby and Johnny, you'd mentioned you could tell who wrote what, but there was different ways to like iterate over a slice or not a slice, a, a list, I guess, in Ruby. <laughs> but you know, there's different ways to do that. And the team actually had me changing to the style that they used. And at the time it's kind of like, uh, that's annoying to figure this out, like, and to adapt to their way. But now that I've like coded longer, it makes way more sense. I completely understand why they pushed for that. And I guess I'm just wondering if having that separate style guide review that's sort of baked into your process early on might be beneficial for some teams. Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like that's a bit like how when you have like a, when you're like writing a book, you have different types of editors, right? So you have like a story editor and that person's there to like make sure your story is consistent and that it's accurate and they do some fact checking. And then you have your copy editor, which is just the person that's like, is your sentence structure or are you like, well, are you using the like words correctly? Like, do you have typos? And just like really making sure that you're, well, more or less meeting a section of that manual style. And I think, yeah, absolutely. We should have more of those types of reviews because just because you understand the the space doesn't mean you understand the language that well. And I think it can be hard to, I think it's definitely harder, especially as companies scale, to like have everybody know everything. I think that's kind of impractical. And having a few people that specialize and are experts in something yields a lot of value, as we've been saying, in like the ability for everyone to read and to understand and contribute to the code bases. So yeah, I think you can really just take, you know, some expert Go engineers and have them just be able to review all like all of the code reviews that come through and make sure like is this you know go style is this uh, meeting the idioms that we have i also think it's easier come review time to like only focus on one thing i know when you get a big chunk of code and it's like i'm reviewing this for style and for correctness and like you know these other three things at some point you're like it's hard to like cover that all in a review without going through it multiple times This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is code search for every developer and team. Easily search across all the code that matters to you in your organization. Find example code, explore and read code, debug issues, and so much more. And I talked with Byung Lu, CTO and co-founder of Sourcegraph, and asked him to share what code search is, what developers and teams are missing out on, and how Sourcegraph provides code search to every developer in the world. If you've worked inside a Google or a Facebook or any one of these really big, well-respected technology companies, chances are you've used something like Code Search before, and you, you know the value that it provides to your team. You know that almost every single engineer inside these organizations uses it on a, a daily basis. If you've never had that experience, chances are you may not know what you're missing out on. You know, the term Code Search sounds a lot like you know grep or the search inside your editor. And that's what a lot of people think when they first hear it. But it's really about much more than that. It's really about connecting you as a developer to the broader universe of code and code-related data that's relevant to you, that you need at hand in order to enter that you know, magical flow state of you know, being in your editor, writing code quickly, making rapid progress towards that feature bug fix that you're working on. It's really about making all that contextual information accessible at your fingertips. And what that means is, think about every single repository, every single file, and every single language, uh, every single diff. 
and every single open source dependency or maybe closed source dependency that's shared across your organization. All that is searchable through a single text box. And that's really powerful because it means all this friction is eliminated between you and understanding that broader world of code. You don't have to clone stuff down to your local machine. You don't have to mess around with editor config. You don't have to be constantly bugging people on other teams who may not even know who you are in order to teach yourself how all that code works. What Sourcegraph is, is really a way for the rest of us, the people who don't work inside the Googles, the Facebooks, to get a tool that gives us access to that sort of information readily and, and at our fingertips. It's really about bringing this, this type of tool that a lot of the larger technology companies have developed and invested hundreds of millions of dollars into making for the productivity of their own engineers and making that accessible to every single developer in the world. All right, if code search powered by Sourcegraph sounds like something you and your team can use, head to info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog and click the button that says try Sourcegraph now. You can install locally, deploy it to a server or to a cluster. They have a quick start guide that takes less than five minutes to install Sourcegraph using Docker, so it's too easy to give it a try. Again, head to info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. start a fight with uh, Chris and say that I don't think you can afford to review the entire code base and clean up, or at least I'm speaking from, from the point of view of the business here. No business wants to pay developers to make things pretty or make things, I mean, and the words that we would use as engineers, right? More maintainable, you know, easier to, to, to ship features and make things faster, et cetera, et cetera. While there is a case to be made for that, the business is gonna see that as, as a cost, right? Because it's much easier to see the time engineers are spending in putting into something that it, it is really arbitrary, unless you're really good at tracking and you can tell exactly that, you know, these improvements you made, you know, last month to the code base led to a speed up of the shipping of this particular feature, right? Which is very, very hard to do. No business really wants to like, really wants you to do that, right? But what I will agree with, you know, with your analogy, Chris, is that you should be cleaning, right? Your pots and pans as you go. Never assume you're gonna get a kitchen makeover, right? To stick with that analogy. <laughs> Never assume you're going to get a makeover. You can just blow blow away, you know, the, the West Wing of the house and you get a new kitchen, right? You, you know, you better keep, you know, you know, scrubbing your pans and keeping things tidy as you go because chances are you're not going to get to do it over again. It's, it is way too costly for the business. At least in my experience, that's what I've seen. I will absolutely let Chris rebut this, but as someone who is purely on the business side as a product manager, I take issue with that blanket statement. We on the business side do care about that. I Ooh. would say we do have to weigh up like tech debt in conjunction with feature projects with other priorities, but it is definitely in the list of priorities and it's definitely on our mind because as if I as a product manager go to my team and I say okay great we need to build this uh you know machine learning 
personalized push mechanism. And then they come back and they say, oh, I don't even know where we, we built that. There's this, you know, we have these three repos that are, you know, these three microservices that are all linked together and they're reliant on each other. And we'd have to decouple those and build this. And I just want a clean architecture that we can build great features on top of. And part of that is me as a product manager, like fighting against the other business partners to find time to say, no, we're not going to develop this feature. Our engineers need to do this cleanup. Agreed, you're not going to be ever in a position, I doubt, where someone like me will come to you and say, hi, you have five months to rewrite your entire code base and make it beautiful. But it's about bringing in those opportunities and hopefully, if you have a big enough team, concurrently allowing your engineers to take on tech debt as well as pushing forward features and giving them kind of best of both worlds. That is what I strive to do. It's very difficult, but I I would say Fine. blanket Fine. statement that we on the business <laughs> side don't care, I take issue with. I pass the bat on to Chris. Uh, hey, you asked for one popular. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on one point. I don't think that we can afford the time to like stop and like have an eight month review of the whole code base and make sure everything's like spick and span and shiny. Like, I don't think that's good. I think the the thing that we want to do is over time do it. So it's like over time, we've basically rewritten the whole code base every year, but we don't have any point in time where like we stop doing everything and rewrite the whole thing. I guess it's sort of like, I, I would use an analogy of like rearranging your kitchen over time. And sometimes you're just like, okay, this cabinet is really messy and you're not going to demo your whole kitchen and build a new kitchen just because one cabinet is messy. But you're like, okay, I'm going to focus on this cabinet and really think about how I use the things in it and arrange it so it's good. And then I'm going to do that periodically for all of the cabinets in my kitchen just to make sure that things are where I use them and they're in a good space for me if I'm doing a lot of cooking, right? You probably don't need to do that if you're not doing a lot of cooking, but if you're doing a lot of cooking, like having things that you need really nearby can actually speed up the process a lot. So I think that there is this big value proposition in this having cleanlier code bases that you can just start adding in features much more quickly as long as you make sure you're continually keeping your code base clean and keeping it consistent. So I guess I do agree with you on the like, no, we, we can't just stop and rewrite the code base for five months. Although, I will say that that is actually what tends to happen a lot at companies, right? The code base gets so bad that we declare it legacy, and then we say we're just going to go build the whole thing again. <laughs> so, like, your unpopular opinion is actually what we tend to do <laughs> at a lot of companies. His uh, unpopular opinion is definitely what, like, if somebody graduates college and learns all these things and then goes to a company... I feel like it's new grads that very consistently are like, all oh, this code doesn't follow standards and doesn't follow these rules. We need to just get rid of it and rewrite it. And I think a lot of that's that naivety that like you can just stop and rewrite everything. Like you are right, Chris, you can definitely remodel your kitchen piece by piece. The biggest downside to that is that you have to do it within the constraints that are there. The best example I can give is like, let's say you have a refrigerator that's giving you issues and you need to swap it out. You know, you don't renovate the entire kitchen for that. But you do have to get a fridge that fits in the space you have. You can't just go buy this massive fridge that would solve all your problems because you want to because you've got a limited space in your kitchen. So I think like that same analogy works where, you know, teams need to be refactoring things and, and iterating on them as they go, but they need to sort of keep it within the scope of what's reasonable for the project. You know, you can't always write it the way you would if you were working from scratch, but you can definitely improve on what's there. 
I don't think y- y'all have been part of a kitchen remodel because I'm. I mean, <laughs> cause, cause, <laughs> you, you can't you can't take out like just like if if I you tell my wife, appliances. If, if, I, if I tell my wife, look, we got we're gonna redo the kitchen. We're gonna take a modular approach, a very very sensible, you know, um, responsible approach. I'm just gonna take this row of cabinets, and we're just gonna swap out just this just this row. Right, we're gonna we're gonna leave the bottom row. It's gonna look a little rough for for, for for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. Who knows? I mean, we 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 take really taking you know being being responsible here, you know, because we want to ship features, we want to make food faster or whatever, right? So that's no, that's not gonna fly, right? So some jobs, if you're gonna replace the cabinets, you have to replace all of the cabinets because you're gonna bring people in to do that labor taking out the old, putting in the new, right? So the analogy here being that some parts of your code base, I think we, you know, to some degree, we've all, we've all been a part of these projects whereby somebody goes and says, well, you know what? We should really take out this whole module, this whole component. We should just rip that one out. And then you go in there and you realize, oh, well, crap, that one is tied to that component. So if we refract, if we remove that one that we need to refactor, you know, this, this, this dependency here, which is going to cause this one to change and that's going to affect that one and that one and that one, all of a sudden, you know, your, let me just refactor or remove or, or recreate this one thing turns into a much larger project than you anticipated, right? So that, you know, leaving, leaving folks like Angelica to have to fight with the business right, to get that team the time that they need to actually do this surgical work, right? So, which is why I think you tend to see less and less sort of a, a, a appetite, I should say, right, from the business to to let these things fly. It ends up having to be a fight every time. Which goes back to the original around needing to have a clear plan before you start coding. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice let's plan. plan it out. Let's nice. do a tech brief, an RFC, a POC. Let's get all our ducks in a row before we start building it. And, and to clarify a little bit, when I was talking about the cabinets, I was talking about the things in the cabinets, not the cabinets themselves. So rearranging right. like all of your spices and whatnot <laughs> so that they're easily accessible. Because yeah, like I, a piecemeal replacement of cabinets, like no, like no. Why would you do, your kitchen would look ugly. You can do partial things though. Like, like to give you an example, Johnny, my brother recently painted all of his cabinets and it looks a hundred times better. And that's not a complete run, you know, he's not completely renovating, but he did do something small. Lipstick on a pig, yeah. I get and it. you can take appliances out and swap those. But, I mean, like even going to your point, sometimes when you say we're going to do all the cabinets at once, the reason you do that is because you analyze like the pros and cons of doing it all at once versus piecemeal, and you realize that cost-wise it's going to be way more effective to do it all at once. And I think with software it's the same thing. You kind of need to figure out what's the most effective route forward, or like, can we repaint these and get by for another five years and, and see how it goes? And that's kind of the, like the cleaning up. It's still in my mind, that's cleaning up. It's, it's not forcing a complete rewrite of something. It's just deciding what's going to get us by. Fair enough. I think the moral of this is that there's a lot of nuance in these things. Yes. <laughs> we have to apply liberal amounts of nuance to, to kind of like anything that we try to analogize or, or add in general. The business side does care. I mean, I feel like half of this episode is now about kitchens. <laughs> I, I will say I have never run into a product manager that has ever said, no, you're not allowed to play down technical debt. Or, no, you're not allowed to make the code base look better. It's always, all right, like, 
how much time do you need? What do you think the velocity of the features we're going to get after it? Do you think we can still build features while we're doing it? I've never had anybody just be like, mm, no, you, you can't. We don't, we don't have time to, to clean up the code. So I think everybody does know on some level that I think they've all had an experience that like, if we don't clean up this code, then it's going to take 10 times longer for me to get a single easy basic feature, and it is going to suck. And I'm going to have to explain to the business why a two-week project is taking two and a half years to complete. And you can always refactor as you go. Like, you don't even have to get permission in a lot of cases. It's just if you're touching some code and the code around it could use a cleanup, you can sometimes get away with it. Yeah. But, well, I, I can, but I don't have a boss yelling at me, so... Maybe I'm different. <laughs> I am very happy. Maybe it's been too long. If an engineer comes to me. If anybody has a boss yelling at them, they need, they need to change that situation. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Psychological safety. If any engineer comes to me and does like a small change, and they're like, oh, while I was doing the small change, I put unit tests in and I did some cleanup. I'm like, thank you. You're wonderful. Please continue. <laughs> I mean, Johnny, just, didn't you know that's what pair programming with Matt is like? He just yells at you the whole time. Oh, no. Just getting yelled at. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I have no idea, but I'll try it and let you know if that's what he does. Management by screaming <laughs> is not the type of environment most of us want to work in. All right. Well, I think we're over on time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we hope this has been enlightening and helpful, and hopefully you'll take some time to learn about writing. Uh, I guess as we're signing off, Chris, Angelica, Johnny, do any of you have any recommendations on what people can look up to learn more about writing. Any books or anything you recommend that might apply here or help them in their coding world? Hmm. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. I mean, honestly, if you're interested in the concept of kind of coding is writing and it's a way of communicating your thoughts and feelings and communicating what you're trying to do to other people, if you're interested in that concept, I would recommend that you watch uh, Laura Brovsky's YouTube talk she did a TED talk on how language shapes the way we think and kind of cognitive diversity when you're using different languages I think code does does kind of come into this and how it's interesting that languages at their root are all very similar they have the same baseline but then the way in which you communicate to others tells a lot about yourself and the way in which you think about solving problems so I think it's interesting. It's tangential to a lot of the points we've made here, but I think it's a good talk. Check it out. If I can pitch something I did, uh, I did a talk at GopherCon in 2019 called The Gopher's Manual of Style that hits on a lot of these same points and kind of extrapolates on them and get, goes in a little bit of a different direction. It's on YouTube. Scratch that. Just watch Chris's talk. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have links in the show notes. So if you go to the Changelog website, you'll be able to get those. My recommendation is since this is a Go podcast and we want to tie it, you know, this today's topic to to Go, I'd say if you haven't read Effective Go, um, read Effective Go. It's one of the things I tell people like, you know, that I that I read once a year and reading, right, the the sort of uh, um, how the creators of the language sort of uh, intended for it to be used. You're going to pick up a lot of how to communicate intent right in your code by uh, reading that manual and also there is a we'll put in the in the show notes but there is a um something that uh, the go team had put together a style guide we'll put that in the show notes um for uh, basically the do's and don'ts right of uh, of for like i think it was code review comments if you search up golang code review comments you'll you'll find it that's also is a very good piece of documentation to to read right in order to help you with the writing but the thing is about 
writing, it's one of those skills, just like coding, right? It's just something that you're going to have to do. <laughs> so write, you know, if you don't have a blog or if you don't have opportunities, right, to, to write at work, seek those, seek out those opportunities. Um, you know, if you don't have those at work or it's not possible to, to, to get those at work, uh, write a blog, right? Write, write what you're learning, how you're learning it. Right. So again, get in the habit of writing for others to consume, not just for you. Right. So, and again, you don't, you don't have to, you know, take people's um, sort of judgments of that. The internet is not always friendly. You might have people say, well, I hate that. And that's fine too, but you're not doing it really for them. You're doing it to, you're making your work public, but really this is for helping you. Right. So this is going to require a bit of sort of stepping out of your comfort zone here a little bit. And before you call me on and says, well, Johnny, where's your blog? I don't blog. You know, I do a ton of writing for, for either for my job or for writing for, for training courses or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting my writing kicks, you know, in other, in other places. So, you know, don't call me out on that. But, you know, again, just basically, you know, find an opportunity to, to get some writing experience, basically. That's, I guess that's the bottom line. You know, do it. And then it, hopefully it, it gets better over time. I, I would add a small thing to that, too. I think a, a good way to kind of jump into writing more um, that is a little bit of a less of a kind of jump as blogging is, is to do journaling. I think mm. just like getting yourself in the habit of taking your thoughts and transforming them into words and seeing how that feels and kind of get a feeling for that is a really great way to start like becoming a better writer. I think it was, uh, who was it? Uh, Richard Feynman, I think, had that quote about how, you know, a reporter was like, oh, it's so nice that you've documented your thoughts like this. And he's like, no, 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 this writing, these are my thoughts. And he, he's like, I think through writing. And I think I feel very similarly about that. Like when I'm writing, it's not like I think and then I write. It's like I write by thinking. And I think that's a very effective way to become a better writer. Because I think a, a big part of it is just doing the craft. If you want to be a writer, start writing. And if you want to be a regular GoTime listener, start subscribing at GoTime.fm. We are also in every major podcast directory, so search for GoTime in your favorite one and subscribe there. You'll find us. Question for you. Do you like to be that smart, forward-looking friend who helped others find their new favorite podcast? Well, if you think GoTime is good, you have an opportunity to be exactly that kind of friend. Just think of someone who might enjoy the pod as much as you do and give them a holler. Easy peasy. This episode of Go Time was hosted by John Calhoun with Angelica Hill, Johnny Borsico, and Chris Brando. It was produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by awesome sponsors like Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. On the next episode, Matt Ryer returns for a deep discussion on what exactly happens when Go programs end. But do not confuse that with what happens when Go podcasts end. Turns out that sounds exactly like this.